Lord, we just thank you for, uh, for this chapter, this text, Lord, for the book of Romans, for all that your spirit wants to speak to us. And so, Lord, as we, um, as we come to the word of God this morning, we just ask for a spirit of wisdom, Lord, and revelation. Paul prayed that for the Ephesians, that they might know you better. And Lord, we ask that too. We just, we want to know you better, Lord, know your word more, understand what your spirit is saying to us. And so God, would you uh, just pour your spirit into this time, Lord, speak to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Right on, so we, uh, we, we left off last week in, in uh, verse 17, and I thought we'd just read, just start off here again, recap a little bit of uh, verse 16 and 17 of Romans chapter one, and it says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, we talked about this last week, he had not been involved in planting this church, but there was a unique situation going on in the city of Rome that did need to be addressed. And it's kind of one of these things that's hidden between the lines of the book of Romans, but it really helps you in understanding. You know, I would say this will, this will give you maybe greater comprehension of the book of Romans even as you make your way through it. But what had happened is this, and we talked a little bit about this last week at Pentecost. The Spirit had been poured out. Jews from all around the known world had descended upon Jerusalem for the celebration of uh, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit at that time was poured out upon the believers and those Jews returned to their cities and churches were planted. And we talked about how now about 25 years had passed when Paul writes this letter. Well, what had happened in the meantime is this, is that the church had flourished in Rome. And the church had started out totally Jewish. It was Jewish followers of Jesus that planted the church in Rome. And as they served Jesus, the church grew, Gentiles got saved, and now you got a mix in the church of Jews and Greeks. But under the, under the uh, leadership of the Roman Emperor Claudius, he did this, he evicted all of the Jews from the city of Rome. So all of a sudden, under his leadership, all the Jews get tossed out of the city. 40,000 Jews are forced to leave Rome, and so now you've got a church that started out Jewish, that was Jewish and Gentile, and now is entirely Gentile. And one of the things that happened then was under the, the leadership of Nero, when Nero came into power in Rome, before he like went crazy and totally lost his mind, he saw that the economics of Rome had been hurt by the Jews being removed from the city. So he welcomed them back, so now they come back. So now you guys, just imagine this in the church, right? It's like there's lots of dynamics here. Jewish church, Jewish Gentile church, Gentile only church, now it's a Gentile Jewish church. Do you get the picture? And in the midst of all that time, some attitudes had developed amongst the, the non-Jewish believers in regards to God's heart towards the Jewish people. We know this, that he hasn't abandoned his covenants with them. They're still his chosen people. You know, some, some believe that it was during this time that w what developed is what, what some call replacement theology, that the church has replaced 
Israel and God's plan of salvation. But that's not the case. God, God has a plan for the entire world and, drew, and, and, and the Jews are very specific to that. Our gospel is a Jewish gospel. This is a Jewish book. Our savior is Jewish. And so the, there's the relationship between Christians and Israel. The relationship between Christians and Jewish people is totally important. And so Paul is addressing this. This is one of the reasons why he says this. The gospel's to the Jew first. We see that in the practice of Paul, that wherever he went to a city to establish a new work, he went to the synagogue first. And once he was rejected there, he went out and preached the gospel to to others. And so here's this dynamic that's happening, and we're going to see it more as we go through this book. And Paul's really going to address it in, in Romans chapter 9 through 11. If you're always wondering how those chapters work and what they're about, that's the background right there. That's what Paul is specifically addressing. And so that's where he starts here is he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God, he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul says there's two reasons why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Firstly, it is the power of God. We talked about this last week that inherent to the gospel is the power of God. That when the gospel is proclaimed, the power of God manifests. In fact, the gospel is the power of God. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. And the second thing he said is this, is that in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now I like that word reveal. You might want to circle it in your Bible. It means this. The righteousness, God takes the lid off his righteousness. Man, you ever come home? Maybe dinner's cooking. Come in and, oh, something smells good. And you head up to the stove and you lift the lid off to see what's cooking. Wow, man, that looks good. I can't wait to sink my teeth into that. That's like the picture here. That the righteousness of God has the cover lifted off it for us through the gospel. This is where we see the goodness of God, his love, his righteousness, his plan to save his creation. And Paul says this in verse 17, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I was cruising around online this week a little bit and we were, um, we, don't, we don't have cable at home so we usually watch Netflix and then Lisa and I like to watch stuff on PBS so we always cruise the PBS website and I saw actually that they released this documentary on Martin Luther. I'd encourage you to go check it out. Uh, this is the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year and so it's a, almost a two hour documentary on, on Luther and it's really well done and this is what Luther discovered that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, from first to last. What that means is this, is that it's not that you and I are, need to be righteous to be saved uh, in our own works, but that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us as we come to him in faith. His righteousness is given to us and and I read that word faith and I think it's important that we have like a working definition of what faith is, that we understand what it is because I think there's lots of misconceptions even in the church in regards to what faith is. So let me tell you what faith isn't. Let's start there. Faith is not superstition. Yeah. 
my kids play hockey and I know they've got their routines, you know, and tape their hockey stick this way. I'm gonna do this, this skate goes on. You got your superstitions. Faith is not a superstition. What's a superstition? It's an irrational belief. Irrational belief in, in spiritual, supernatural influences. It's not, that's not faith. Faith is also not an emotion. You know, it can be emotional. You can experience emotions alongside of faith. Faith can affect my emotions, but faith is not an emotion. It's also something that's not sourced in me. That's the other thing I'm going to tell you about faith. I'm not the source of my faith. And here's another thing about faith. Faith is not blind, actually. It's not blind. So if that's what faith is not, what faith is is exactly all the opposite things. Faith is a, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of faith. And faith is not irrational, it's intelligent. Our faith is called to be discerning, uh, to, to be wise, to be knowledgeable, to be logic, to be rational. And faith is, is sight. It's sight. It's not, it's not blind. It is a conviction, the Bible says, of things that are unseen. It's, it's seeing things that are unseen. It sees beyond the realm of the physical, and it comes, faith is, is born of the word of God. And so Paul says this, or no, you know what, even before I say that, you know, when, when the Bible tells us, build up your faith, you know, be built up in your most holy faith, stir up faith. What it's telling us is this, is not to whip up an emotion, it's saying this, build upon faith. Faith is foundation. Faith is a foundation. Following Jesus is a life of faith. It's from faith to faith. We live by faith from first to last, from beginning to end. That means, you know, when things are great, it's all awesome, life's all good, everything's rolling. Faith in Jesus Christ is the foundation of my life. And when life is the total opposite, it's sorrow and it's grief and it's pain and it's suffering, the arithmetic of our lives is exactly the same. Faith in Jesus Christ is the foundation of our lives. So whether life is good or whether life is bad, I've discovered this. One plus one equals two. And faith is the same way. It's from first to last. Paul says the righteous shall live by faith. I was just doing on this this week, the way, you know, the way the week's gone and all that stuff and thinking about the Simpsons, you know, um, back a more than 10 years ago when I was a youth pastor, Sam and myself and a couple other adults uh, uh, got together a bunch of youth group kids from the Sunshine Coast and we went and we paddled for five days the Powell Lake Canoe Route and it was like the best experience. I'm like, uh, I want to do it again. I've always wanted to do it again. Some of you guys know. I tried to do it again this summer and then my family kiboshed my plans because they didn't want to portage and sleep on the ground and all of that stuff. <laughs> but on that trip, yeah, that's right. Aw, <laughs> you can all feel sorry for me. But on that trip that uh, we went on those years ago, uh, we spent five days paddling those lakes and on our fourth night, we were doing the last big portage, which is nasty. 
you know, there was adult leaders, and, and so I'm, I'm packing, like, my stuff, I'm packing cooking stuff, and I got a canoe on the roof. And uh, on that last bit of the hike, you, 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 you come down, and, and you have to descend 1,500 feet. So it's like switchback, and you're like this. And I'm like, I'm like, holy smokes, man. And I've got this left knee that gets a little funky once in a while. And, uh, and so we get down to the bottom of the, the campsite, and my knee just starts doing the, the sewing machine, and I'm trying to stop that knee. And, and I, go to, I go to flip the canoe off my head, and man, I just crumple right to the ground. Right when I do this you know, power lift move, the knee gives. So down we go. And I'm like under the canoe, twisted up. I'm like, help, help somebody. And, uh, and so Sam came over, got this thing off me and some of the kids, and uh, I was really thankful for a chiropractor on that trip because <laughs> Sam adjusted me on the picnic table, and it was awesome. But that night, what I want to tell you about that story is that night we were there, we, the lake is called Goat Lake, and Goat Lake sits in this kind of valley, and it was a beautiful, clear summer night, and there was no other light. Like, I mean, it was black. All we had to look at was the stars and the sky. And it was one of those spots where it was like, wow, the sky here tonight is particularly awesome. And so a bunch of us in the dark got into our canoes and we just jammed in there and we, we paddled out into the lake. And it's a weird thing to do, but we just laid back in the canoe like this. It doesn't feel very comfortable. You gotta relax. And we just stared at the skies and the mountains were outlined and we looked at the stars and it was so gorgeous and, and it functioned this way that it, the stars were so awesome because it was so dark, you know? And it was in such darkness that, that, we, that we beheld the beauty of the heavens and the light of the stars. And here, here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to do, he's going to take us on a journey just like that. He's going to say, so that you can really comprehend the light, we need to look at the blackness. We need to see darkness and all of its darkness so that we can see and stand in awe of the righteousness of God, his power and his gospel and what it is. And Paul's going to talk about sin here. He's going to tell us that God hates sin. But he's also going to reveal to us this, that God loves sinners. That God loves sinners. That's what he's going to do here in Romans chapter 1. He's going to describe the, the, the utter darkness of man's condition without God so that the light of the gospel just shines all the, all the brighter for us. And so last week we, we looked at this verse that we looked at just this morning here quickly too, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 where Paul says, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And maybe the question that just arises for us, it's a good healthy question is, well, why do I need salvation? What am I saved from? Like, big deal. The gospel reveals this. What do we need it for? And so this morning we're gonna, we're gonna look Specifically just at verses 18 to 23, because there's a lot in this chapter. And, and Paul is going to just continue here where he picked off. He's going to um, 
just make obvious for us mankind's absolute necessity of the good news and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Mankind, we're going to see, needs to be saved from the wrath of God. And, and Paul's going to demonstrate to us that God is righteous, that, he's, that he is right in taking the actions that he is taking against mankind. And so, you know, whenever I read this, I always think this, this, this passage does not teach us about the evolution of man. This is, here's some important stuff for us right here. This passage, Romans chapter 1, teaches the absolute opposite theory as the theory of evolution. Contrary to the opinion of many who believe man started low, you know, started out in this primordial soup and an evolutionary process through natural selection with millions upon millions and upon millions of years, you know, we've evolved into these glorious beings that we now are. But the Bible actually reveals quite the opposite. Because of sin, man has been brought low. That he has de-evolved. And not only is this true, but, but as mankind resists God, morally speaking, he, he disintegrates, we're going to see here. And, Paul, and so Paul is going to walk us through the de-evolutionary process of man. And so in verse 17 and 18, he, to, he told us about the power and the righteousness of God that is revealed in the, in the gospel. And you could almost, I encourage you to go home and check this out. You can almost take verse 17 and the next verse and lay them right over top of one another. He tells us something in the exact same pattern all over again. They, they, in verse 17, he talked about the revelation of God's power and righteousness. But now he wants to tell us about another revelation and it's a revelation of the wrath of God. Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed. So here it goes. The lid is coming off. He says, you, you want to see the wrath of God? This is how God, this is the revelation of God's wrath. Let's lift the lid off. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them interesting what he tells us this he says the wrath of God isn't revealed in the gospel message the, the gospel message reveals the good news of Jesus Christ and God's plan to save us by his power and by his righteousness but now Paul's not talking about the saving work anymore. Now Paul is talking about the work of God's wrath. And, and the revelation of that wrath. And I, I, I read this and I always think this. That, this, that the wrath of God here, as we're going to see, is revealed in the common experience of mankind. His wrath is revealed in human experience. You remember when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, spends his time up there with the Lord, and he, he receives the Ten Commandments that are inscribed on stone with the finger of God. And those commandments, we know this, as Moses comes down the mountain, those commandments divide into two categories. They, they have to do with our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Four of the commands have to do with how we respond to God. 
And six of those commands have to do with human relationships. Now, where did those commandments come from? They came down from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven in regard to those same two categories. As we see in the commandments, his wrath is revealed against the godlessness of man, against man's rejected relationship with with the creator and his wrath is revealed against the wickedness of man which speaks about our relationship with each other. It's interesting, Psalm 1 tells us that that the wicked are like chaff that, that God just blows them away. That's not a comfortable thing, you know. Psalm 1 says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. And so when Paul speaks of God's wrath, what we have to remember is this, is that we're not talking about our human concept of anger. Ooh, I'm angry. You made me angry. We're not talking about a human concept of anger here. You know, human anger, sometimes it's petty, right? Sometimes we like, in a relationship, it's like petty. Or sometimes, you know, anger is like rooted in our own selfishness. Or sometimes our anger is motivated, motivated by our desire for revenge. Or, or sometimes, you know, our anger is legit and it's righteous. It's a righteous anger. But we're not talking about human anger. We're talking about God's wrath. That's something entirely different. And God's wrath, Paul tells us, is revealed from heaven and it is deserved, he says. His wrath is the, is the righteous response to mankind who rejects him. That's what Paul tells us. And so the question for us might be this. It's like, what's, how can that be? You know, it's like, how, how, does, how does a loving God respond to his creation in this way? Why does, why does he do that? I mean, that's, that's the age-old question, isn't it? Well, uh, Paul helps us in this, I think. And he actually accuses godless people of two things. You might want to write these down. Two things that he accuses godless people of. The first one is this. He says, you suppress the truth about God. And the second thing you do is this. You substitute that truth with lies. He says, godless people suppress the truth about God and then they substitute the truth with lies. So let's talk about the suppression of truth regarding God. Paul says this, it, it happens through the unrighteousness of man. The man actually suppresses the truth by his own righteousness. Have you ever, you ever tried to you know, run a boat against a tide or a kayak or something like that? I, was, I often think, whenever I think about this, I think about Adam DeJong and myself at, at, at West Resort a number of years back. We took out his two paddle boards and we thought we'd just pull out of West and that we'd paddle down towards Egmont. Seemed like a good idea. And, and we got paddling and five minutes went by and I thought, man, we're moving. And, uh, and then, then we decided to turn around and go back to the camp. And it was like, oh man. I mean, it took us at least three times longer to get back and to cover that same ground. And, and because we were going against the flow of the tide that was moving its way into the Skookum Chuck, it was, it was the second I took one paddle stro- stroke off, 
we were going backwards. And so we just had to bear down and not miss one stroke. Just dig in. Dig in. And it's interesting that, that uh, sorry, my page got flipped there. Suppressing the truth is, is like doing the same thing. It's like just going against the flow of God. Going against the current of the Lord. Suppressing their truth by unrighteousness and wickedness is, is how man goes against the current of the Lord. And the reason why God's wrath is being revealed because Paul says mankind knows better. He says, for what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them because God has shown them. He says this, there's no excuse for not believing in God because everyone has access to two truths. Every person in this whole world has access to two truths. Here they are. Creation around us and conscience within us. Creation around us and conscience within us. And so Paul talks about creation first. He says this, God has, God has revealed himself to man through creation, through the things he's made. Cre creation testifies and creation gives witness to the reality of God's existence. He says this in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, struck me this week that, that Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Look at verse 20 here again. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Creation, Paul says, reveals the invisible qualities of God. God God's not hidden himself. God has not hidden himself. I remember when my kids were little, we used to play hide and seek. You ever play hide and seek with little kids? It's lots of fun. You know, when you're the seeker and you're looking for them, well, it's fun, but it's also kind of lame <laughs> because it's like really what I had to do as the seeker was pretend that I couldn't see my kids. It's like, wow, I wonder where they are. What could be this lump under the blanket, you know? Whatever, their hiding spots were obvious. And, you know, if I wasn't sure where they were, I'd just stop and listen for like 30 seconds and there would be noise, and I'd figure out what it was. And then, and then they, you know how it is. Kids get older, and they get good at hiding. We've had some pretty good games in our house. But God, who is divine in his nature, and who has eternal power, what Paul's telling us, he doesn't play hide and seek. God doesn't play hide and seek. There, there's no cosmic game of hide and seek, and yet, yet man, like I did when my kids were a little younger, pretends that he can't see God. I can't see you, God. Where are you? <laughs> Pretends that he can't see God. And the reality is this, is that when, when, when all the facts are pointing to the reality that he is and that he exists, I mean, just because you put your hands over your eyes doesn't mean that God isn't everywhere and can't be seen everywhere. Paul tells us he exists and creation reveals it. There's a unique word in, in biblical Greek that's... Um, only found in two spots in the New Testament, yeah, only in two spots in the Bible, and it's one of the spots is in this verse right here, in, in verse 20. The other spot is in, 
in Ephesians. And uh, the word, the Greek word is a poema. And poema is a, a word that describes the handiwork of God, his creation. It describes what he has made, poema. And that word, the other spot that it's found is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's a, it's a verse that you're probably familiar. Ephesians 2, 10 says this. For we are God's workmanship. For we are God's poema. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul tells the Ephesian church, we're the poema of God. We derive our English word palm from that Greek word. So in other words, in a sense, we, we are God's poem. You are God's work of art. You are his handiwork. And poema imp implies that, that the work of art, the work of writing the poem has begun, but it's not finished. Isn't that a neat thought? That, he, that the Lord is still writing his workmanship upon your life. And in the uh, uh, epistle to the uh, Ephesians, Paul is telling them this, salvation is just beginning. You're the workmanship of God. You're, you're his new creation and he's going to continue to work into you, in you until he has made what he desires. You're his handiwork. You're his, you are his work of art. But God has another work of art that Paul tells us about here in Romans chapter 1. Two works of art that he has. Another poem that he's writing. Another piece of his handiwork. And the other is this. Uh, creation. That he has made and uh, done for man. So you got two works of art. I mean, think about this for a second. It's kind of interesting. Two works of art. The person who is a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's one work of art. And the second work of art is the handiwork of God. Creation reveals him. All of the world has that testimony. Two works of art going on around them everywhere at all times. You go, look at that dude. What happened to him? I don't know, man. He got Jesus. <laughs> so, it's a work of art. God's just painting the picture right in front of people all the time. Creation is his other work of art. Painting the picture in front of people all the time. And creation reveals, Paul says, it lists the lid off two things for us to see. Two of the invisible things about God creation lifts the lid off of. His eternal power and his divine nature. So the second poem is creation. I mean, you think about it, two poems, one's physical creation and the other poem is the lives of men and women who have been saved by Jesus. Both eloquent, both give testimony to the reality, to the eternal power and the divine nature of the creator. And so Paul is, is telling us that creation gives witness to God's existence. Well, how does creation do that? How does it do that? How does creation tell us about God? Well, there's a couple easy ones that you can pull out of your Bible. First one's in Acts 14. You can put that up on the screen there, Calvin. Acts 14, verse 17 says this. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, 
For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. The psalmist says this, God gives witness to himself by sending rain. We get, sometimes I wish he'd hold it back a little bit, you know, here on the Sunshine Coast. Okay, Lord, we got it, thanks. <laughs> no, but right now, we, we would like rain, wouldn't we? And the scripture says that God shows his goodness by sending rain. If he wasn't good, he'd just withhold it forever. He, you know, it's really clear in, in, in the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this, remember Elijah and the drought and the whole deal? It's like when rain doesn't come, as much as we want to get all scientific about this, here's what the Bible says. When rain doesn't come, it's because God withholds it. And so rain comes from the Lord. It's his gift to water uh, the earth. God gives us crops in their seasons. You, know, you think about um, all that science has been able to do, right? The way they've gen genetically modified food. You know, we're all, we're all into this conversation in the last number of years. GMOs, we don't want GMOs. We don't want genetically modified food. Which is a really interesting thing when you think about it, when you consider the word of God, because it's like, wow. Man, with all his skills, took something of God's creation and maybe he made it efficient a little more over here, but he put a mark on it over here. He, he, he made it maybe a little more efficient, but he corrupted it over here. And there's this fear about GMO food. You know, no one was afraid of food until man began to modify it. It's an interesting thing. No one was afraid of food until science got its hands on it. I'm not anti-science, but I'm just saying it's an interesting thought, you know, that no one was afraid of it until we messed with it. And for all the changes that have been made to crops, man still can't do this. He can't make it grow. He's still dependent upon God. He's still got to put the seed in the ground and go, Dear God, please. Because you can't manufacture what happens when the soil goes over it. God does that part. That's his part. Cover it up with some dirt and water it, and man is dependent upon making it grow. That's what Psalm 19 tells us. Or sorry, what, what uh, Acts 14 tells us. Psalm 19 tells us something else. I'm going to put that one up on the screen. Psalm 19 verse 1 to 4 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. You know, man's comprehension of the universe and his ability to see it and see the extent of it just keeps growing and growing and growing. You know, I'm not like too crazy into this stuff. I'm not into it that much at all. But once in a while, I'm just fascinated and I'll go, you know, Hubble pictures and see what the latest photos are. You know, they're producing every week new photos that the Hubble's sending back to us. And, you know, if you've ever looked at stuff, it, it, it looks like works of art in the heaven. You're like... Man can't make that up, man. You couldn't paint that if you were dreaming. That's a picture of the glory of God and his handiwork. 
And the thing about the testimony of creation is that it, it does not, Psalm 19 tells us this here, that it does not rely on speech or language. You know, if I were to go to China, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to China. My ability to tell people about Jesus and to communicate truth to them is hindered by something. I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. That's the problem. But what the psalmist tells us here is this, is that every culture, every tongue, every language, every people group can observe creation. There's no language barrier. They can look at the stars and stand in awe of the heavens and come to the logical conclusion that tens of millions of years ago, just since one instantaneous big bang, it all came into existence. That was a slight tone of mockery there, if you didn't get that. No, the logical conclusion is this. Wow. Somebody made this. Somebody made this. Paul talks about eternal power, meaning this, that, that God not only has the power to produce creation in a one-time act, not only does he have the power to to, to always work in creation, but he also has the, the power to constantly sustain creation. He sustains it. Our Bible tells us that. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I love that. All things hold together in Jesus Christ. You know that's eternal power. He holds the universe together. Our understanding of science backs up the revelation of God's eternal power in creation. You know, the two most basic universal laws of science, the first and second law of thermodynamics. The first law says this. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It only changes forms. Which that, that reflects the completion and quantity of all things that God created when he spoke this universe into existence. Genesis 2.1 says this, that the he, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his works. The, the, the first law of thermodynamics reflects what God did in creation. In the past, it's, he completed it. And he's holding, it all he's holding all things together. Which is kind of cool. Because if you want to learn something about conservation, there's someone you should go to. The ultimate conservationist who's holding all things together. His name's Jesus. The second law of thermo thermodynamics reflects the, the curse on creation that, that sin brought. That second law teaches us that things are always deteriorating. They're, they're moving towards chaos, deteriorating in quality. And it's the, the consequence of sin that everything now has this, this tendency towards death. 
Everything disintegrates into dust. Man returns to dust. Dust to dust and ashes to ashes. And God created out of the dust with his eternal power. Created, created the dust, sorry, and out of the dust, the eternal power of God is completely sustaining creation. A creation that's deteriorating and yet God is causing new life to always come in the midst of that deterioration. It's like man cuts down a tree, Lord causes another one to come up. New plants, new stars. Creation gives witness to the eternal power of God. And the only adequate cause to, to produce infinite, unending, power-filled, intelligible universe containing living creatures must be an infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, living, personal God. Creation also does this, it doesn't just reveal the eternal power of God, but it reveals his divine nature, Paul says. That, that means this, that, that creation, think about this, reveals the Trinity to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, obvious and apparent in three distinct persons. That's the nature of God. The invisible, omnipresent Father, the visible, approachable Son, and the indwelling, guiding counselor, the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons who are one, three in one. That nature of God, just like his eternal power, is revealed in creation. I mean, think about the universe itself is a, is a trinity of space, matter, and time. All three distinct, yet all th three required to form the universe. It's called the... The, the space-matter-time continuum. Space is described in first, second, and third dimensions. Time is understood past, present, future. You know, matter, the substance of which all material is made, it's it, solid liquid gas. In English language, we speak first, second, third person. You know the old Sunday school lesson, the egg, the yolk, the shell, the egg white. How about the nature of man? Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5, may your spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man made in the image of God is a triune being of spirit, soul, and body. And so the, the physical universe is a great trinity of trinities. Now you can't totally prove it with such examples, but the amazing thing is that God has made creation to reflect him and his creation knows it. He's without excuse. That's why Paul says the wrath of God is revealed. Man is without excuse for acknowledging his creator. And really what Paul is describing here is someone who ignores God. Someone who's just ignoring everything that is obvious and apparent, apparent in front of them. So what does that person, so, so why does a person do that? Well, the, sec the second thing is this, is the conscience within us. See, acknowledging God, acknowledging that there's a creator, means this, that, that my life, the order of my life has to change. You know, I have to move from being self-governing, self-centered, and say, 
well, you created me. What do I exist for? I have to move from being self-centered to having a God-centered life. Jesus and Nicodemus had a conversation about this in John chapter three that you're really familiar with. When, when, when Jesus told him a man needs to be born again, Nicodemus said, what? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, no, no. Not born of the flesh, born of the spirit. A man needs to be born of the spirit. And, and in that conversation, Jesus went on and he said a verse that's so familiar to you, but there's some important stuff that follows that verse. It's John 3, verse 16. I think it might be on the screen. Is it on the screen? I can't remember. Let me read it to you. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. It's like, wow. The conscience within me has to suppress the reality of God or the darkness in me has to be exposed. If I'm gonna come into the light, we know this, we come through faith and repentance. The darkness has gotta be exposed. And Jesus just said this to Nicodemus. He said, men love darkness. Humanity loves darkness. They don't wanna come into the light. Otherwise, they've got to move from the self-governed life to the Jesus-centered life. See, every living being has access to creation outside and conscience within. Every human being. Creation outside and conscience within us should, should tell us and it does tell us that, th that there is a God and that right and wrong matter to him. That we're made in his image and that that is why we have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. The conscience within us. You know when, when they go to the most you know over the years it's just you find some primitive little culture somewhere some group of people stuck on some island over here whatever it is and they go in there, what do they discover? They have a concept of right and wrong. You know, it might be skewed, it might be twisted this way or that way, but every culture has a concept of right and wrong. The conscience reveals that. And acknowledgement of God means I have to change. I, I have to move to that God-centered life. And so what does man do in his resistance of that? He substitutes the truth of God with lies. Look at verse 21. We're going to wrap up real quick here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Plus, the problem's not that they did not know God, but that they 
did know him and they refused to glorify him as God. You know, it's really important that we compare our concept of God against the revelation of who he reveals himself to be through his word. We need to know our Bibles. And we need to know what our Bible says about God. Otherwise, we can slide into this self-made image of God where we delude ourselves into thinking who, who, who he is and what he's about and we make him up in our imaginations. Uh, our God, the living God, has to reflect the God of the Bible. And when a man chooses not to give glory to God or to give thanks to him, Paul says this, his, his thinking becomes futile. This means this, that he's, that he's empty, he's vain, he's foolish. His heart becomes deprived of light. His heart that is the, the center and seed of his spiritual life. And when a, when a man refuses, when a person refuses to acknowledge God, it's, it just means this, they become unintelligent, stupid, in their ability to perceive spiritual things. You know, when we coach hockey, when we coach hockey, you know, this is culture around hockey where it's like, thank the coach. Make sure you thank the coach, okay? You make sure you thank your coach. Hey, practice is over. Say thanks to the coach. You know, like there's this culture where it's like, acknowledge the authority and be thankful. And you, you know, it's an interesting thing. Why is that? It's because ungrateful people are like annoying, you know? They're rude. You know, it's like, who wants to be around someone who's not grateful, who's not thankful? You know, it's like any parent knows that an ungrateful child is an evil thing. It's like, seriously, <laughs> it is. Say thank you. Say thank you. Say please. Be polite. You know why we know that? Because we're made in the image of God. And so Paul says this, he says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Luther said this, all men have a clear knowledge of God, especially his divine nature and eternal power. They prove this by calling the idols that they made gods and they revered them as eternal and almighty, at least strong enough to help them. This demonstrates that there was in their hearts a knowledge of, divine, of a divine sovereign being. How else could they ascribe to a stone divine attributes? Had they not been convinced that such qualities really belong to God? Manifestly, they knew that God is mighty, invisible, just, immortal, and good. But they erred, ascribing to their idols divine attributes. Paul says, although men claimed to be wise, they were fools. Psalm 14 verse 1 says that those who deny the God of creation are fools. And Paul says here in verse 20, they're without excuse, really, it, which means this, there's no defense. There's, there's actually no defense. Make up whatever story you want. Whatever argument you want, there's no defense for such a foolish decision. And yet they come to this foolish conclusion about God. Some even claim to be scientific and attempting to explain 
away an infinitely complex, majestic, beautiful creator. And so Paul says this. We're going to just read right through the end here and we're going to tackle this part of it next week. He says, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says this, they exchanged the truth for a lie. Light in exchange for darkness. Immortality in exchange for mortality. And people do this because they've made up an image of God in their own hearts and minds. You, know, you, could, you could leave here this morning, you could have a conversation with anybody in this entire community, anywhere you go, and you could say to them, what is God like? What is God like? And, and they will have an answer. They might say, well, I think God is like this. Da, da, da. Or they might say, I don't believe in God. Or they, they might say, I don't believe there is a God. And they will tell you what they think God is like, even if it's this statement, I don't believe there is a God. And what they've done is this, Paul tells us, is that they've made an image in their own mind about what God is like. And he's saying this to us. This is important as we close here. It's total imagination. It's delusion. It's delusional. But it's the God they like to think of. They've, they've made the image of God in the image of themselves. And that's why we have to know God as revealed in his word. Any concept or idea of God that steps outside the, the, the cover of this book is your imagination and your delusion. If it ain't found in here, it's a delusion. Amen? Man, there's a song I love from a group called Rivers and Robots and they just, they just they say this. So I cling to the lamb who has purchased me with his blood. I stand in his righteousness washed by his mercy and love. Though I fail a thousand times, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Wash my heart clean. Let my spirit be steadfast and strong. My sins like scarlet will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Broken and contrite, you will not despise. So wash over me, clean my heart, clean my mind, clean my eyes. My sins like scarlet will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. You know, next week, we'll look further at this. This exchange that man makes from the truth about God for a lie. And it's interesting that it's the definite article when, when Paul calls it here, the lie, it, it's taking us right to Genesis chapter three. He's saying just like Adam and Eve, they've all gone to the tree and bit into that fruit. So let's just read to the end of the chapter here. And so he says this in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see in that passage there, I encourage you to just go home and check it out. Three times he says the Lord gave them over. He gave them over because of a deliberate denial of God to their sinful desires, to the lusts of their heart. Because they worshiped and served creative things rather than the creator, he gave them over to their shameful lusts and dishonorable passions. Because they did not want to know anything about God, he says in verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Next week, we're gonna just look further at this de-evolution of man, but you know, just a couple things that I'll leave you with right here, real fast. Real simple things that we can walk away with for our, for our lives. Here they are. Honor God. Be a grateful child. And recognize you can't form God in the imagination of your own mind. This book right here. Got to know the God revealed in it. And you know, it's, it's not simple. I mean, it's not, it's not difficult. It's simple. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord and acknowledge Him in all that you do. Isn't that what His Word says? In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Let's pray this morning. Lord, so much in that text, God. And Lord, as we consider these things, we just thank you for the revelation of you. I thank you, Lord, you're not hiding. Thank you, Lord, you're not hiding. And so God, this morning, we just acknowledge you. You're the creator. We're your creation. Sorry if we turned you into something, Lord. If, I'm sorry, Lord, if I've turned you into something that's just of my own imagination. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Correct us, Lord. God, we pray that our lives would give honor to you, that you would uh, change us, Lord. That, God, that as, as you write the poetry of your story upon our lives that you would set us free from the delusions of our own mind. We cling to the reality of who you are and your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your, that your righteousness is revealed to us in the gospel, your power to save us. And so Lord, from faith to faith, the good and the bad, from first to last, Jesus, we put our faith in you. You're our hope, you're the foundation of our lives and we trust you, Lord, and we love you and we thank you for saving us and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.